There's a lot of specificity that goes into reimbursement, which can be really overwhelming when you're getting started, although it does get easier over time. Hello and welcome to this MGMA Insider Podcast. I'm Chris Harrop, Senior Editorial Manager for MGMA. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Rachel Dixon, who is MGMA's resident telehealth expert. She's also Chief Strategy Officer for Care on Location, a telehealth medical service, hardware, software, and consulting company, an Acting Executive Director of Prime Health, a nonprofit that drives digital health innovation in the safety net space. Rachel is experienced in the clinical, operational, and technological implementation of telebased modes of care delivery. She has worked with numerous provider organizations to successfully design, implement, and maintain virtual collaborative care in various settings, including primary care, community mental health centers, and residential care. She also has expertise in the Medicaid payer space, and her work has given her an in-depth understanding of payer, primary care, specialist, mental health, and community perspectives. Rachel will co-present a four-hour online seminar titled Using Telemedicine to Improve Your Bottom Line on April 25th, along with Jonathan Savage, Chief Executive Officer of Care on Location. The course will provide in-depth review of telemedicine billing, reimbursement, and financial management strategies, as well as how to interpret state-specific rules and find the resources for proper documentation to support successful telemedicine models. For MGMA members who would like a preview of the seminar, Rachel presented a webinar in late November titled Telehealth from Scratch, a deep dive into planning and implementation, which can be found on demand at mgma.com slash telehealthplanning. Rachel, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm excited. Let's start back with some of the issues that were raised by attendees of the webinar you hosted late last year, which I think lays the groundwork for talking about the upcoming online seminar. I think one question that many webinar attendees had was getting a general sense of the reimbursement environment for telehealth in 2019. What have you seen from government payment programs that's changed since last year? Are there any new Medicaid and Medicare codes that practice coders and physicians need to pay particular attention to? Yes, Chris. CMS has opened up a number of exciting new codes in 2019, which is consistent of a trend that I've been observing for the last seven or so years, especially where each year we're seeing new codes open up, new policies put in place meant to support the adoption of telehealth and make it something that's financially sustainable for organizations. This year, there are a few key initiatives I think providers should be paying attention to, mostly focused around new codes to support remote patient monitoring, care coordination, in addition to ongoing initiatives to, for substance use disorder and chronic condition treatment. So we'll just go down the list. Remote patient monitoring, there are a few new codes that have opened up to make it easier for providers to be compensated for remote monitoring of things like weight, blood pressure, pulse oximetry. What's also really exciting about these new codes is that these services can now be provided by clinical staff, such as nurses and medical assistants, in addition to providers which should make incorporating it into existing workflows much easier. We also are seeing increased adoption of policies for substance use disorder treatment and and new reimbursement models around that. So CMS has issued new codes for substance use disorder treatment over telehealth, as well as an interim final rule to eliminate geographic restrictions for the purpose of substance use treatment. That'll be starting in July of this year with um, more programs starting in 2020. So in 2020, we're expecting to see additional Medicare benefits opened up for opioid use disorder treatment program. The, The name of the act for the substance use disorder prevention and treatment programs is called SUPPORT for short. It stands for Substance Use Disorder Prevention that Promotes Opioid Recovery and Treatment for Patient and Communities Act. 
quite a mouthful. That's a very exciting program that I think is opening up a lot of really exciting options around the country for communities that are looking at ways to address substance use disorder treatment. We're also seeing some new codes around virtual check-ins. This is enabling a brief communication through technology for check-ins to evaluate whether or not an office visit or other service is necessary. This can also be used for chronic care management, checking in with the patient, and is also billable over the phone, which is very exciting and a new thing. Excellent. I want to come back to the support piece that CMS is implementing. I think one of the interesting things about telehealth that everyone faces as a hurdle are those originating site geographic requirements that not everyone could really embrace telehealth. And that's still, there are still a lot of requirements out there. The interesting thing there, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this now moves away from the originating site geographic requirement. And this now allows providers to go into the home of an individual, a patient, uh, as an originating site. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And across the board, there are a number of codes that are coming out to support the home being an originating site for billable visits. So if you look at the Support Act and, and for opioid use disorder treatment, that's specific to enabling the home as an originating site for Medicare. When you look at Medicaid and commercial payers, This is already an option for a lot of services, and there are a number of new codes in addition to the Support Act-related codes that are coming out for in-home billable services. And I think you also noted that CMS also has final calendar year 2019 and 2020 payment and policy changes specific to, in the same vein, home health agencies and home infusion uh, therapy suppliers. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yes, absolutely. So starting in 2019 and going into 2020, CMS is no longer requiring that home health agencies prove medical necessity for a home visit in place of an office visit, which is exciting because it gives home health agencies and provider organizations that partner with them a lot more leeway to use remote patient monitoring and telehealth services to support those home health needs. And then staying in the vein of enabling the home as a place of care. When we look at federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics, the originating site requirements have been a big barrier for them since typically billable services for an FQHC or an RHC require the patient coming into the clinic. So for some of these services going forward, they're also now enabling a set of new codes to enable those organizations types to bill for virtual communications where the patient is in the home. And then there are some areas of telehealth that don't really focus on, say, a a live synchronous video link up. So one of the big things in healthcare right now that people are talking about is patient-generated health data. And one of the great ways to capture that is remote evaluation of pre-recorded patient information. Can you talk a little bit about these services? They're not subject to the Medicare telehealth restrictions. They can't substitute for an in-person service currently payable under the physician fee schedule. But can you talk about, say, the new codes in that realm and how that will help uh, with uh, providers getting reimbursed? Absolutely. So there's one code in particular that is new called the G2010, 
And that code is reimbursing for remote recorded video and or images that are submitted by the patient, to your point. So let's say, for example, you have a patient that wants to, that's doing an urgent care visit over telehealth and is concerned that they have a strep throat or something like that. And so they take a picture of it or a video of what's going on and send it to you for interpretation and follow-up. There's now a code that corresponds with that where you can get reimbursed for the time that it takes to receive those images, evaluate them, and provide feedback. And so that may not originate from some other E&M service that's happened recently. This is the patient has reached out and sometime within about 24 business hours, a provider is going to get back in touch with them about this information that they have supplied to the practice. Is that right? Yep, you got it. And then can you also talk a little bit about what, what people are calling interprofessional internet consultations? What goes into that? So this is meant to support care coordination and integrated care teams. Interprofessional consultations are really common where you may have a primary care provider consulting with a psychiatrist and a licensed behavioral health provider and any other kind of specialist you can think of all coordinating around a patient. Historically, having multiple professionals in one consultation or those, care, those coordinated care teams have been difficult to capture from a reimbursement perspective. So these new codes are meant to support a team-based approach to care by using technology. There are a number of codes, um, 99446 through 99449 are related to interprofessional telephone assessments and management services. So if you have a consultative physician that's providing verbal or written feedback around a patient with the patient's treating physician or other professional, this is now reimbursable for five to 31 minutes. There are also specific codes for telephone calls or video calls related to those care teams all getting together. So this is a really exciting one for me. To give you an example of what this might look like, in a previous role, I managed a specialty care practice that focused on virtual integrated care of psychiatry and behavioral health into primary care teams. So we would often have on the call an integrated team of a primary care physician, maybe a specialist related to a chronic condition that patient had, as well as a psychiatrist and a behavioral health clinician maybe have some family in that call or caregivers or educators at a school all working together to talk about how we can coordinate around this patient's care and their needs in these different settings. Historically, that wasn't reimbursable. That was just something that we did because it brought a lot of value to the patient and to the provider team in terms of knowing and being able to get together sometimes for only five minutes, 10 minutes, to talk about what are we all doing for this patient's care plan? How are we working together? How can we coordinate better? What does the patient need? All of that, which we found beneficial and saw ROI from just in terms of being able to coordinate more easily, have a more effective plan in place, and to know what that patient's care was looking like across the spectrum of providers, especially if they were in different organizations. And so this code is huge because what it's doing is, is reimbursing for the time that those care teams are taking to coordinate around that patient and to make sure that we're all working together for the common good of, of the patient. 
That's a really great example. That's one thing that we looked at with the research and analysis report that MGMA did last year on telehealth uh, adoption and best practices is finding ROI in a lot of different areas. You mentioned just now in terms of care coordination and making it simpler for the providers to move a patient throughout the care continuum. That's one area of ROI that's really interesting for telehealth beyond just one, the bottom line, getting reimbursed for the services provided. And then two, all of the realm of patient-centric ROI, such as access, getting people in faster, uh, as opposed to waiting for an in-person visit that's scheduled out however long, or just being able to market your practice in a way saying, hey, yes, we have this. If you really want to just be able to fire up a webcam or your phone and get connected with your provider, that's been a big area of ROI that providers have had in meeting sort of patient consumerism demands. The last thing I would add there is that if you think about e-consults in terms of, and we'll, we'll stick with the example of behavioral health and psychiatry, But if you have a primary care physician that's managing a patient with serious mental illness or or chronic condition in that area, historically, there was no good way for the primary care provider and the psychiatrist to be compensated for the time they spent working together. So those e-consults, which which is often what that looks like in terms of a PCP checking in with the psychiatrist to talk about medication and or diagnoses or management in the primary care setting, all of those services were not reimbursable, but still important and necessary. And so my guess in looking at these new codes related to interprofessional consultations is that they're going to further the adoption of e-consult models and make it easier for specialists and primary care providers to be reimbursed for that kind of care coordination, which is which is great for a number of things. One, in terms of just day-to-day practicality and getting reimbursed for something that you didn't used to be able to get reimbursed for. But also as we think of patient-centered medical home models and, and the primary care provider as the center of that care team and, and providers working at the top of their licensure and provider shortages and specialty care shortages and all of these other things, making it easier, more cost-effective, and more efficient for providers to coordinate interprofessionally over the telephone or over video is, is so impactful when you look at that broader perspective of care coordination and provider shortages. And given all the providers that have either already embraced or in the process of integrating behavioral health into their practice, that's got to be really exciting. Yeah, it is. So a lot of people that reach out to MGMA in the past Note the challenge regarding finding a way to start with all of this with telehealth, finding the right vendor, navigating the geographic requirements. Others say it's the coding and reimbursement side using modifiers. In your estimation, what would you say are the three biggest obstacles for physician practice groups in getting a telemedicine program up and running? I would say that number one is definitely reimbursement. It's incredibly complex. It varies state by state. It varies by payer. It varies by where the patient is located, the provider type, the service, the disease state. There's a lot of nuance and specificity that goes into reimbursement, which can be really overwhelming when you're getting started, although it does get easier over time. So reimbursement complexities can be one of the biggest challenges just because there's so much research that goes into it up front. 
one of the best ways to overcome that in terms of making it easier, and, and this is also, I would say, the second challenge that I see most commonly in terms of success of telehealth programs is knowing where to start. A lot of organizations that I've seen typically when they when they first get into telehealth start out with a thought along the lines of we're going to start doing telehealth, thinking of it as a general service or a, a new thing. Um, but it's it's telehealth is a tool. And so it's very specific to what are you wanting to do with telehealth? Why are you doing telehealth? Mm -hmm. And so when organizations start with defining the why and the what, it's a lot easier than to navigate all of the reimbursement landscape and, and the specifics of workflows and technology and requirements. So one of the biggest pieces of advice that I give to org every organization that I work with is before you start diving into implementing telehealth or selecting a vendor or purchasing things or even writing a grant to support the adoption of a new telehealth program, first back up and say, what are my pain points? Where am I losing revenue right now? What provider shortages do I have? What's inconvenient for my patients? Where are some of the opportunities that I can use these technologies to increase the efficiency of my team? to overcome shortages or resource challenges in terms of recruitment and staffing, or to better support my patients, especially if they have um, mobility challenges or they're far away from the clinic or they're coming in all the time because they have a chronic condition. So thinking about that technology as a tool and then looking at your practice to say, where is the best fit for me? is really important and, and sometimes a step that can be skipped. So I think that is a big piece. And then when you, when you know that, it makes it a lot easier to manage reimbursement complexities, as well as that third big challenge I see, which is the adoption and implementation of a telehealth program. So you were talking about <clears throat> finding the right vendor or, um, you know, knowing what the requirements and restrictions are. If you go in with a clear plan of, I want to use telemedicine and in particular remote patient monitoring for my chronic condition patients, then it's a lot easier to say, okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna start with a cohort of um, patients who are in the middle of cancer treatment or who are requiring a lot of monitoring for diabetes and things like that. And then looking into that even deeper, you can say, this is the technology I need. This is best suited for live video for behavioral health, or this is really great for monitoring diabetes in the home, all of those different questions. And so it gives you a lot more clarity and focus, which, which becomes really important then in terms of working with your team um, and making sure that you're listening to your providers, that you're taking the time to address their concerns, give them the proper training, and give everyone a clear scope of work for the new program, as well as what those ROI, the, R, the return on investment and those measures of success are going to be. If you just start by saying, we're going to start doing telehealth, it's with, it can be very challenging then to say, what is the ROI? How can I prove that? How do I, how do I know if outcomes improved or 
or whatever those success factors are for your telehealth program. So I think a lot of the biggest challenges in terms of telemedicine are all right at the front. Knowing where to start, coming up with that what and why, giving your team a clear plan as well as some measures of success, and then understanding as part of what you want to do with telehealth, how can you get reimbursed for it? Those are really great points. And of course, telehealth, that's even sort of a really broad term in and of itself. There's multiple forms of telemedicine and one size does not fit all for a lot of different practices in different specialties and areas. So these are really great points. And of course, I'm sure you'll be expanding on these in terms of the options that practices have and some use cases during the online seminar in uh, April 25th. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be we'll be spending about an hour and a half going in depth on some of the the common types of programs, especially for organizations that are starting out or expanding models that other organizations have seen a lot of success with in terms of return on investment and financially sustainable telehealth programs, as well as explaining what those different broad buckets are and how each of them can be applied. So We talked a lot about chronic condition management and remote patient monitoring. There are also a lot of really great programs for accessing specialty care, whether you're a primary care organization that wants access to a psychiatry or a rural hospital implementing a telestroke program. There are a lot of really great ways to use telehealth to augment your practice, but it it does take some upfront research and, and strategizing. Rachel, you gave us some good information about how CMS is approaching this. Can you give us a sort of overview of what you're seeing on the commercial payer side for telehealth? Commercial payers more and more are covering telehealth services. The big five, Aetna, United, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Humana, and Cigna all reimburse for telehealth services, although coverage does vary by policy type, so it's still important to check with your payer and verify the patient's insurance. The majority of services that are covered are live video services, and the other important thing to keep in mind here is that commercial payer reimbursement varies state by state and has a lot to do with the state's laws regarding parity. Parity meaning that commercial payers are required to reimburse for appropriate services as the same rate that they would for an in-person equivalent. And that that can really vary. So Colorado, for example, is a parity state, meaning that Medicaid reimburses for live video telehealth services as the same at the same rate that they do in person. And they also require that commercial payers do as do as well. There are still, especially because like we've talked about, telehealth is a is a broad and vast landscape, there are different services, things like remote patient monitoring, care coordination, store and forward. MHealth, some of those other services that may or may not be reimbursable. So it's still important to check, but overall the broader trend is that commercial payers are absolutely adopting telehealth as an option and many of them have partnered with telehealth providers to offer their own telehealth services as part of a benefit of the policy. So Cigna, for example, offers telehealth services, United offers telehealth services, there's a lot of great adoption on the commercial side as well. That's great information. Coming back to the past webinar, some practice leaders worry about that shift from patient visits in a clinic that telemedicine might cannibalize some of those patient visits. Some MGMA members said shifting lower acuity visits to the virtual space allowed them to get patients with higher levels of need into the clinic sooner, even if the volume drops. We had another MGMA member report that even with a drop in visit volume, 
productivity in terms of billables and work RVUs increase. What do you see as a feasible model for the physician productivity and volume question that's being posed? This is a really great question and one that I'm glad you asked. I think it's important for practice leaders to remember that they are in control of how they use telehealth, that telehealth is just one of many tools, and that there are a number of different customizable applications. Organizations use it in a number of different ways, again, really designed around what are the pain points that that clinic is experiencing, what are the opportunities that they're identifying for how they can generate more revenue or fill some gaps. So, for example, in primary care, there's a statistic that approximately 80% of a clinic's resources are used by about 20% of the patient population. That can be around things like substance use disorder treatment, chronic condition management, um, mental health needs that are coming into primary care, a lot of different things. And so when you, so telehealth, there's a lot of great application there for managing some of that in the home, maintaining a connection and a relationship with the patient without necessarily requiring them to come into the clinic which can really increase clinical efficacy, efficiency, and revenue by enabling more patients to be coming into the clinic and really expanding volume. Another way that we see it is using it to address provider recruitment, staffing, and retention, as well as filling time for no-show rates. So let's say, for example, you are wanting to recruit a provider type but you don't actually really need a full-time person or even 20 hours a week, maybe you only need 10 hours because it's a higher level specialty or the volume doesn't justify it. Telehealth allows you to right-size your provider staffing model so that you're only buying what you need and you're not having to address a lot of the other things like recruiting to your area or relocating, it makes the recruitment process much shorter and more cost effective. So telehealth can be a really great way to save money in terms of recruitment and staffing. And then for the providers that you do have on your team, when you're incorporating tele telehealth models, whether they're remote patient monitoring or live video services in with your traditional in-person services, it allows you to make up for any lost revenue or downtime because of no-shows or it's a slow day and things like that. So when providers aren't with a patient in person, they can be making phone calls and following up with patients in the home or having care coordination visits or remote patient monitoring visits and things like that that allow them to really maximize on the hours in their day in terms of both revenue generation and seeing more patients than they would be able to in a typical day. <clears throat> Excellent. And of course, this and a lot more on in terms of telemedicine billing, reimbursement, financial management strategies, interpreting state-specific rules, finding the resources for proper documentation to support a successful telemedicine model will all be covered during the April 25th online seminar entitled Using Telemedicine to Improve Your Bottom Line. Uh, we'll have even more stuff on, say, uh, telephonic services, remote patient monitoring, store and forward. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, so excited to be giving this seminar and 
look forward to sharing more of the nitty-gritty details about reimbursement with everyone. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you.